Hey everyone, it's Dr. Arnold. I'm excited to announce a new segment that will be coming to the podcast, and that is the mailbag. If you have questions about COVID-19, latest technologies and procedures, and other services provided at Point Health Cedar Rapids, or even other general medical topics, uh, you can now submit those questions uh, to me, and they may be answered on uh, the podcast. To submit your questions, go to unitypoint.org backslash mailbag. That's unitypoint.org slash mailbag, M-A-I-L-B-A-G. Please note that the mailbag is certainly not an alternative to a medical appointment. Any questions about personal symptoms or conditions need to be directed to your primary care provider or an urgent care. And as always, in the case of an emergency, uh, dial 911 or present to the nearest emergency room. Once again, you can submit your questions to me at unipoint.org backslash mailbag. That's unipoint.org backslash mailbag, M-A-I-L-B-A-G. I look forward to hearing from you, our amazing listeners. This is Live Well Talk on Skilled Nursing Part 2. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital. With recent rise in hospitalizations, uh, geriatric patients are impacted by COVID-19 as well as other medical conditions that perhaps could have been delayed during the lockdowns of 2020. Return to the podcast today to discuss skilled nursing as well as the kind of the impact that hospitalizations have on our geriatric patients is Dr. Cleet Younger, who's Medical Director of St. Luke's Living Center. And for the first time on the podcast is Lindsay Glenn, Executive Director of Abbey Health Aging Services. Today, we'll discuss how hospitalization may impact geriatric patients, cognitive health, and how we can be supportive and improved upon uh, with skilled care nursing. We'll discuss resources of aging services. Cleet, Lindsay, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, first question, Lindsay, do you know why it's called Abbey Health? Well, it used to be Abbey Inc., but, um, you know, a lot of our focus uh, historically has been on mental health. Uh, and as we started expanding our services, uh, we uh, focus on so much more than just mental health. Uh, Aging Services is an affiliate of Abbey Health, and uh, we focus on older adulthood and making sure that people have the services they need to remain in their home for as long as possible because we know that that's where people want to age and mental health and um, aging are two very huge components to um, to everyone's health. So I actually just be a little bit more specific why it's called Abby. Do you know the story behind that? I, you know, that's, that's fun because I don't know specifically the Abby component of that. No. Well, the first director wanted it to be early in the yellow pages, you know, from alphabetical standpoint. And he lived off Mount Vernon Road and that Abbey Creek is there. And that's how it became Abbey Health. Yeah. That's a he true wanted story. it in the front of the front yeah. of the book. Yeah, Jeff Wilhorn told he, me that story, and he was he was I, there in the beginning, so he should you know. know. I wish I was that creative. <laughs> yeah, I can only repeat these stories. I'm not smart enough to come up with them, but uh, well, I, I think that's nice to explain to aging health services because I I personally have never really understood exactly what their role is, and um, we'll kind of develop more upon that uh, during this conversation today with Dr. Younger. Cleet, what, or either one of you, let's start with Dr. Younger. What, what impact does being hospitalized have on a geriatric patient, not just only their, whatever the medical condition was, pneumonia, heart failure, et cetera, hip fracture, but just on their overall well-being from a psychological standpoint, a functional standpoint, uh, what are the, the detriments to simply being hospitalized? And, why, and, and hence, it's a good reason not to be hospitalized. 
I think sometimes what we see is that a hospitalization, it exposes frailty. So it'll expose something that's there before that you may not have been aware of. And, you know, we all want to be optimistic when we talk about our function and what we can do. But sometimes a hospitalization will expose what someone's frailties are, and that will show to themselves or to their family or to the community, oh, we have deficits in this in this area, or this is a limitation in function that a patient may be experiencing. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, sometimes too, we see the a hospitalization as a threshold. So where somebody may have a gradual decline in function, a hospitalization can be a drastic decline in function. Sometimes that function will come back and sometimes it won't. So sometimes patients will have a complete shift in their functional level associated with certain types of hospitalizations that then requires higher levels of care going forward. Lindsay, what's been your experience with the patients that you support and and how a hospitalization may influence their uh, functional capacity and their ability to return home? Yeah, so we see that quite quite a lot. Um, really, the amount of care after their hospitalization does does rise, right? We they need more supports as as they're transitioning out of the hospital, and and there are a variety of reasons for that. Sometimes it's restricted mobility in the hospital, continence, medication issues, um, lots of reasons for that. And and some like like Dr. Younger said, um, sometimes it's uh, something that we can um, really help with. Sometimes it's it's long-term effects of those um, hospitalizations, especially if they're frequent um, and people are returning um, to the hospital often. Um, and so a lot of attention and focus for us is on prevention and wellness as well. You know, it's, I'll tell a quick story. Uh, I can remember this patient I had when I previously practiced in, in Grinnell, so in the late 90s. Uh, Nice old lady, nice little old lady, cute, you know, every, the stereotype of the cute little old lady lived by herself, uh, would come to the clinic and it'd be the same routine every six months. They, she would come, introduce herself to the staff. They'd take her blood pressure. There'd be exchange. I would see her, talk to her. She'd be perhaps slightly ingratiating her answers, you know, give me nonspecific, but yet correct answers. Then she got admitted for a pneumonia once and we're around her for 24 seven. And, you know, she has rather significant dementia and we took her out of her uh, routine and it, it became amplified. Cleet, can you talk to something along those lines? Is is it I mean, the hospitalization doesn't cause the dementia, but it perhaps it reveals it. Is that a fair observation? Yeah. So what you have to think about is when you're at home. So if you're at home in your chair, in your house, you know where your clock is. You have this object here. You're used to your food being this way. And because people develop these routines, they don't have to think about that as much. So if I'm at home, I know where the clock is and I don't have to think about where is the clock, what time is it, when I'm gonna eat, how I'm gonna eat. So when you go to a hospital setting, that clock's in a different spot. The food's coming from a different person furniture is in a different location. So all of a sudden you have to start using your cognitive ability to try to reconcile all this information. And in somebody who has a diminished cognitive capacity, if now they have to worry about what time it is, where their food is and where their clothes are, they don't then have the capacity to have higher order thinking about answering complex questions or making complex medical decisions because they're so absorbed in just the simple things of those little details that we take for granted uh, when we're in our home setting. All of that goes away when you put somebody in an unfamiliar situation. And and I think your comment earlier, we'd infer that you may not get that back. Mm-hmm. 
That's possible, especially if somebody then requires some other thing. So if a hospitalization results in a transition to living somewhere different, like uh, senior living or assisted living, it's going to take a while to build that back up, that confidence of where you're at. Or if it's a new medical problem that all of a sudden requires a lot of extra thought. So if you have to take a new medication, there's a new management strategy, or is it a fracture that's led to a pain syndrome? So part of your cognitive ability is being absorbed by, you know, dealing with the, the pain you're experiencing. It's going to take away your ability to have other cognitive processes function as well. You know, I don't think, I don't recall discussing this with you, Cleet, on the last podcast, but I think now would be a nice point for you to illustrate what sundowning is, because I think that term is sometimes misused, but most of the time accurate. But could you give us what sundowning is? Yeah, the the term usually relates to the time of day for when a patient sometimes can have increased uh, issues with cognition or sometimes we see behaviors. When we wake up in the morning, we usually have a little bit more energetic. And what happens is people tend to fatigue throughout the day. So as you go throughout the day, your brain gets more fatigued, your body gets more fatigued. And uh, there's a phenomenon where we will see in the hospital setting or in our skilled settings where patients somewhere between the time of like two o'clock and like eight o'clock at night will all of a sudden become more confused. And confusion sometimes can be met with a response of people get more withdrawn. They don't want to do things. They seem less responsive. Or sometimes it can cause agitation or aggressive behavior. So when we typically hear sundowning in a nursing home, they're usually referencing a patient who gets agitated or aggressive in the ap- in the afternoon around dinner time. And part of that has to do with just the fatigue of the day trying to keep up um, with all the demands that they're having cognitively in an unfamiliar place. And sometimes it's pain because they've been more active during the day doing therapy and things like that. And then they get more painful and that can cause some agitation throughout the day. And there's just kind of a general increase in energy as people go throughout the day in a facility that sometimes leads to that behavior. Yeah, my, my daughters say that I have bedtimer syndrome where I just get grumpy about bedtime. And uh, so it's 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 a related condition, perhaps. I don't know. I hope hope not. But uh, so it's not it's not related to the circadian rhythm of the day necessarily. It's really the activities that preceded the behavior. It depends. So circadian rhythm is interesting. So there's certain disease processes where we know you lose circadian rhythm. A very common one is Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's patients tend to not sleep well because a part of their brain that's affected by the disease process is part of their circadian rhythm. In certain dementias, we'll see the part of the brain affected that has to do with that sleep-wake cycle. And that sleep-wake cycle goes away So then people either sleep poorly or they sleep at odd times that don't match with our traditional timing with therapy or with meals. And that can cause complications with that. Lindsay, is the role that aging services have or or provides, let me say, uh, is there things that can be done to determine this cognitive decline ahead of time? I mean, rather than it being uh, a revealing event at the hospital or with hospitalization, in subsequent uh, uh, sundowning or agitation like Dr. Younger's describing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think a, a lot of people can become anxious uh, as they get older uh, regarding, is this normal aging or am I experiencing something here? And I think, you know, having having that self-awareness and, and um, thinking about how you and your loved ones are doing and knowing what's normal for you is is good and having open conversations with your family docs about those concerns are really important. We do have the ability to assess um, cognition um, before hospitalization to really see and and it's a it's about looking at whether or not it's having an impact on your day-to-day life 
um, can be a major factor in, in really being able to assess that. People are always forgetful, right, and, and figuring out a way to determine whether that's normal aging uh, or n normal uh forgetfulness is is an interesting conversation and having um having those conversations with professionals and doctors are are important um, because it can be nerve-wracking yeah I, I you know that uh 23 and me and these genetic tests is well we can test find out whether or not someone might be more likely to have alzheimer's i'm like yeah that'd be great and you know the first time you forget your keys you're like oh starting you know i mean so you know that i don't know how great that would be but uh, that being said, addressing these cognitive uh, dysfunction ahead of time is it is important. I don't want to make light of that, but is how do I try to say this? Nobody goes to rehab halfway to rock bottom, right? You don't wake up and say, "Man, I'm halfway to losing my job today. I think I'm gonna, you know, go seek counseling and and, and quit drinking and whatever ill that I, is affecting me." So sometimes patients and families to get a buy-in to this, recognizing this cognitive decline it does take a significant hospitalization to reveal this. So how do you build that rapport with the family to explain to them why their loved one, or even explain to the patient themselves, can't go back to living alone? So I think there's a couple of things to think about. So when we talk about this, recognizing it, there is a high sensitivity for cognitive disorders. If a family member says, my parent or grandparent is forgetful. If you hear that term, those patients can be diagnosed with dementia greater than 80% of the time if you do cognitive testing. So I think one thing is that people, sometimes family members will acknowledge it, but if you don't ask the right questions, sometimes you can't get that out of them. Like they may not tell you somebody's forgetful, but if you ask a family member, hey, is your parent forgetful? If their response is yes, you need to be very on guard for a diagnosable dementia at that point. And it doesn't mean somebody can't be at home necessarily because there's different varying levels of dementia, but people do have some realization that their parent or their grandparent or a loved one may have some deficits. Now, we are social beings, so we interact very socially in conversation, particularly with family. And there are some patients with dementia you could have a conversation with for two hours. They could have moderate advanced dementia and you would never know because they're so conversational and they read off of physical cues and verbal cues that they're able to converse with you. But if you ask them what time it is or to add two numbers together, they may completely fail that question because the part of their brain that they can talk to you socially works great. But another part of their brain, which is, do I remember to turn the stone off, stove off or can I drive safely in a car? There may be significant deficits there. So it does take some time to build rapport with families. But I think explaining some of those things that they start to acknowledge, oh, yeah, they forget this stuff and ask them, have they done something functionally wrong? Oh, yeah, they had this functional thing go wrong. And it helps people start to kind of realize the picture of, oh, there are deficits there because sometimes the social interactions can really trick you. Yeah, I've had uh... I've had, you know, you have the daughter that lives out of state, talks to mom maybe once or twice a week, and then she comes home for the holiday and says, oh, my gosh, mom's de demented. But then you have the daughter that lives in town that says, no, mom's been forgetful for a long time. It's just that, that like you said, that ingratiating personality that, you know, like I always say, you ask the patient, how was breakfast? It was good. What did you have? Oh, the usual, you know, and it, 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 it they might not even had breakfast. You know, but they if you just had that snippet, you would you would believe that that was something. Well, either one of you can answer this question. So we have how do we determine how, how do we determine whether or not someone's going to return home after skilled nursing that with a, a cognitive decline 
or need to be in a uh, memory unit. So do you want to go, Lindsay, you want me to go? Because I'm doing uh, a lot I, of You know, I think what's interesting is I think that we would have a couple of different perspectives on this. So I would like well, to hear your perspective yeah, first. Right. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. hear both. So, yeah. so what, I, what I often ask patients is, can you sleep? Can you get dressed? Can you go to the bathroom? Can you get food? Are you then able to call for help if you need it? Right, so it gets at these very fundamental things about being a human being, eating, going to the bathroom, getting dressed, taking care of yourself and being safe. Can you do those things, right? We have to start there. Um, and if there's a deficit in one of those, then we have to find something to replace that. Then the next level of complexity is, do you have a medical condition that you then have to manage on your own? So is there, do you have an unstable medical condition where if you're not able to take your medications effectively, are you gonna get into trouble if you're not able to do that? So those are the two layers that I typically start with on, you know, can you do this simple stuff? Can you do this complex stuff? Okay, if we can do both of those, we can start talking about being at home. But if there's a deficit in one of those and we don't have a solution for it that involves family or the patient doing it themselves, then we have to start looking at higher levels of care to supplement those deficits. And is there, is there Lindsay, I'll, maybe you can answer this in an equation. Is there a gradation of uh levels of care that might be provided short of going to the nursing home or skilled care so i mean is there stuff that we can do prior to that yeah absolutely so there are there are absolutely differing levels of care um, that are options and that's a great segue into the fact that um that's uh great we have medical professionals that assess um, whether or not somebody should be able to safely go home. And the thing that aging services often runs into is patients saying, we don't care, we're going home anyway, right? Like, uh, we just want to be home. And so we have people that are um, trying to live at home that are unsafe, but it's also their right and their choice to be at home. And so we're helping navigate how do we keep them as safe as possible at home, right? And so there are varying levels of care, and it's all about building that rapport with people so that they know that you're here with them by their side throughout this process because um, there are options for them at home to help keep them more safe, um, working with physicians to really try and ma um, make sure that people are making the safest decision possible in that move. Lindsay, how, how does uh, one, let's say I have a parent, I'm concerned, and I think they might need some assistance. Can I just call aging services and say absolutely. help us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we do a lot of work to help prevent any safety issues ahead of time. And we can help after somebody is discharged um, from the hospital, from too skilled back to home um, and work with a lot of social workers. Um, they can just give us a call and talk about um, services that are available through aging services, but also other organizations as well. There are a lot of services and resources out there to help people remain in their home as long as possible after that discharge from the hospital to skilled to their home. <laughs> All of yeah. those levels of care that we're referring to, right? I think I think if if I could sum up this podcast to two things I I, I want listeners to to hear. That is one is you're not alone in these decisions. There's highly trained professionals that are here to help you and they will help you and and number two that that hospitalization you may never get back to where you were prior to the hospitalization and that's okay um so i i just uh, you know i don't want people to have unrealistic hope that uh grandma or, or or the your uncle is going to get back to where they were before because they may not 
And I think that's the important take home that a, a significant hospitalization is a significant hospitalization. It's a life event. Um, and uh, sometimes it uh, has ongoing ramifications or consequences, I should say. You know, one, of, one thing that we wanted to touch on in this podcast was driving. And Cleet, you and I have had this conversation before. I've had this conversation many times. I was even thinking about this podcast on the way to work today as I was driving. And I was thinking, sometimes it's easier to tell someone they have cancer than it is you can't drive anymore. So, Cleet, how, how do you approach that? That's a tough one. Yeah. So driving is a, I mean, that's people's freedom. That's their ability to go out and do things. Yeah. That's independence. And so unlike a lot of things, when you start taking away somebody's freedom and independence, that's as an American, that's very hard because we value that a lot. So if somebody chooses to not take a medication or if they don't use their CPAP, that the impact of that decision is on themselves. Right. And, and at some point we allow we allow people to be autonomous. And if you don't want to take your medicine, there may be a consequence. I should explain to you what that is. So you're prepared for that. But ultimately, if you choose not to do it, then that's that's your own decision. When you start to talk about driving or this comes up sometimes with caregivers or patients with dementia, now your decisions can impact someone else. And one of the things we really get concerned about are decisions with driving, such as wrong way crashes. And these are the most significant and what we worry about a lot with dementia, because if you get into a wrong way crash, the fatality rate of those kind of accidents is significantly higher. It's not fender benders we're worried about. We're worried about somebody getting on the interstate going the wrong way um, because the impact of that can be so significant. So what I often try to talk to family members about is, you know, we need to acknowledge that this cognitive process may lead to somebody having a problem driving or they're in my office because they had a car accident and the DOT made them come in. What I often tell families is, one, you don't want your family member's legacy at the end of their life to be that they killed a kid in a car accident. Nobody wants that as a legacy, right? When you start to think of it in that terms, that changes people's perspective. That, that's a great and They say, I just want to drive. Like, well, what if you tool. killed a kid? Oh, I don't want to do that. Yeah, like, that's a great tool. There you go. Great, um, great. You know, we need to think about how to make that happen so we don't have that. Then you have to make people not feel abandoned or on an island. If you tell them, hey, we're just going to take your car, uh, well, then what are you going to do? So you always have to have that next step with that is like, is it a family member? Is it some other transportation service that's in the community to allow people to still have that ability to have mobility? Because if you just take want to take their car and not give them another option, they're not going to be um, as receptive uh, to that intervention. Um, I personally have had families or the patient make the decision every time I've had the conversation. I've never had to call the DOT or call the police on a patient that I believe is unsafe before because we've been able to work through this uh, discussion and either get the patient to give up their driving rights themselves, which is probably 90% of the time. And about 10% of the time, we've had to do some alterations where family takes the car away, family takes the keys away. I had a family once that took the alternator out of the car um, because the patient was really like mechanical and they wanted to fix everything, but they couldn't fix that problem. So we solved the problem because they couldn't fix the problem. And, and so there's just different levels of things you sometimes have to do to get to a decision where we're taking away driving rights, but we're trying to do it in the most amicable way that we can. Makes sense. That's a great tool, that legacy. Uh, Cleet, that is, that's, I, I wrote it down. I mean, that yeah, is, nobody wants that to be, you know, yeah, that, that, you're right. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, you get, you get away from putting them on the defensive about the, what their skill level is and you transition it to their impact on other people. That's that's brilliant, quite honestly. So, Lindsay, did you have anything to add on driving and aging services? Uh, I guess I would just reiterate uh, that you're not alone when you are a family member and you're thinking about um, 
your loved one being safe on the road. Um, we run into that a lot where people are concerned and they don't know how to have that conversation. And it typically isn't just one huge breakout conversation. Having multiple conversations leading up to that um, is very common and it's hard. Um, and so don't be afraid to reach out um, to your family doc, uh, to one of us here at Aging Services when you're approaching those situations because you're not alone and it's hard. Well. Dr. Younger, always pleasure to have you. You're like a veteran. I, I, yeah. I need to check. I think you may be the, I think you might have the most appearances on the podcast. I think we've done five, right? Yeah, I think, I think, you, done five, you, yeah. I think Abramson might be a close second, but we're going to look into that and be, see that you get a, a, a lifetime supply of rice aroni, the same for Cisco <laughs> Tree. Lindsay, you're not old enough to remember the game shows that used to be on. But, uh, and Lindsay, thank you for joining me today. Once again, this is Dr. Cleet Younger, medical director for. St. Luke's Living Center and Lindsay. And, and, you know, Cleet, that totally minimizes all the stuff that you do, just to say medical director of Living Center, because you're a hospice, you're an active primary care physician, you you uh, help supervise and, and lead the ARMP post-hospitalization team. So I think we need to get a bigger title, or at least a footnote, maybe in the podcast. It's for, family medicine. We do everything, right? You like, do, and you do yeah. it well. You really do it well. And, and Lindsay, thank you for coming. Uh, this is Lindsay Glenn, Executive Director of Abbey Health Aging Services. And she'll now remember why it's Abbey Health and where that perpetuate that, that, that legend. Uh, for more information on skilled nursing services provided at Unipoint Health Cedar Rapids, call 319-366-8714. And for more information about Aging Health Services, Abbey Aging Health Services, visit unipoint.org backslash aging services. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.